Well, we want to dismiss our kids for workshop. We like to make noise for our children. Let's cheer. Come on. Hey, we, we uh, just found out recently, too, we'll have a, a slide with directions and things next week, but there's a National Day of Prayer moment here in Williamsburg also. It's going to be from 12 to 1 at lunchtime, and it's going to be in the courtyard over by the library near CW. So um, so you, you can come to both. You could do a lunchtime and then come down to Newport News, uh, for, or if you can't make the one here, you can go there or vice versa. But we really want to encourage you to work out your schedule in such a way that you're going to be able to participate in that, just to think about all throughout this nation. Uh, that people are going to be gathering together to pray on that day. So it's going to be a significant moment. So we're excited. We're in the second week of this series called 47 Words, 47 Words. And, and the, uh, the series is based on the last seven sayings of Christ. And this sermon series is, is, is probably more uh, of a study than most of the series that we've done. We, we like to say that if you're a summertime person like we are and you go to the pool, there's a shallow end of the pool, there's a deep end of the pool. And th- there's a shallow end of the Bible, then there's a deep end to the Bible. And so in this series, we're going to get into the deep waters a little bit. We're going to we're gonna furrow your brow some. We're going to make you think. It's, it's going to be a, a note taker's message. Uh, it's probably going to, hopefully, it's going to motivate you to dig around and study a little bit coming out of it, that it's going to introduce you to some ideas and some thoughts about these moments. And these, these 47 words, we're calling them, if you remember last week we launched it, we, we, we used our air horn, right? We're, we're, we're not going to use it again today, but we're just having it up. You could, if you were here last week, that know what your, your ears are probably still ringing just a little bit. We, we want these 47 words that Jesus spoke in the last six hours of his life to ring in your ears a little bit. We want you to remember them. We want you to hear them. We want you to listen to them all throughout the days of your life. Last, last night we had someone uh, visiting the church for the first time, uh, Dorothy Painter, and uh, her uh, husband died a week ago last Saturday. And they had been married for 55 years. They had just celebrated their 55-year anniversary in, uh, in, in February. And uh, you know, what, what if, you know, God had come to him? We talked about this last week. And said, you got six hours left, and I'm only going to give you 47 words to say. That's it. You only get 47 words in six hours. What would be those 47 words that he would have chosen? What would be the 47 words that you would choose? And that's the moment that Jesus stepped into. He didn't just wing it. There was great intentionality came to those last six hours. What did he and the Father have planned for what he was going to say to the world with the last 47 words that he had? And here they are. We're taking this out of the, out of the King James. Can you turn me down a little bit, Chandler? I feel like it's a little bit hot. The, um, the, these, these 47 are taken out of the King James. They are uh, excerpts. And it, you're going to get a different number depending on which translation to use. That makes sense? So it's 47 when you use this one. So it's, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's what we used. We, we dug into that last week. We're going to dig in today. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. We talked about that one last week also. Next week we're going to pick up, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then I thirst, then it is finished. And then we're going to wrap up the series with, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So I just want to give a nod for this book. I'm not going to read out of it, but uh, we like to introduce some books every now and again here. So if, uh, if you want to read something that goes into greater detail about the day that Christ died, this is an amazing book. It's by Jim Bishop. Again, it's called The Day That Christ Died. So if you like history, if there's something in this series that just stirs you to say, I'd like to learn more about the cultural context, what happened during that time. He goes into the sayings of Christ on the cross. He goes into the trial. It's just an amazing 
amazing, amazing read. So Jim Bishop, The Day That Christ Died. So it would be a good addition to your library. So, All right, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke 23. Or if you've got a screen, you can swipe there. Luke 23. And I'm going to start reading in verse 35. Verse 35. It says, The crowd watched... And the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself, if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fashioned above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. We talked about the significance of that sign in that moment last week. You can get that on our podcast off the website. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, and here's our phrase today, today you will be with me in paradise. We, we have this statement that if you've been walking with us for any amount of time here at City Life, that's heaven now, heaven forever. That's our mission statement. That's our vision statement. That that's the, the central message of our church. And you'll notice that the first heaven has a little H and the next heaven has a big H. And what we believe is that you don't have to wait to experience heaven for the first time until after you die. You can experience it in the here and the now. Psalm 27, 13 says, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We don't get all of what heaven has to offer in the here and the now, but we get a foretaste. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure. Jesus wants us to discover a life that feels like heaven on earth. But here in this story about Jesus, in contrast to this text in Matthew, we're reminded that it's serious business about what's to come. That there is a heaven that's to come, but that's only one of two choices. There's also a hell that the Bible speaks of. And so I want to read, I'm just going to read out of verse 44, and I want to talk about that just for a couple of minutes this morning, starting in verse 44. But if you're a note taker, you can, if you've never read this parable, you should read the whole one. Verse 44 says, Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment. Not temporary punishment, eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. Our phrase is heaven now, heaven forever, because we don't want the reality of your life to be the opposite, which is hell now, hell forever. Right? And we're used to, in this society that we're a part of, we're used to negotiating for a better deal, right? You got, if you're going on for a way of, for a vacation, you got these websites, we negotiate. And if somebody doesn't give us the deal that we like, we just, we go to somebody else. There's nobody else offering any other deal than the one that God offers to us. There's only one deal, and it's, it's not negotiable. And, and there's only one decision that stands between what eternity is going to be for you and for me, and that's did we make a vow of devotion in this life while we still had breath like the one revolutionary, the one thief did on the cross. When we read this story about Jesus, there is a great promise that he gives, but in this great promise that we're also reminded that he got saved from a very devastating eternity that some of the other people that were there were that day rejected. 
And we don't want to be a church that doesn't talk to you about the consequence of the rejection of Christ. We want to be a church that calls you into this life of heaven now for heaven forever. But we also want to be a church that says to you from time to time, hey, the stakes are high here. The stakes are high. Not only do you miss out on the best life, the greatest adventure you could ever have in the here and the now, eternity waits for us. Just like Mr. Painter, when we buried him on Monday, his great-grandson came to church last night and he looked up at me and he said, do you, you buried my papa. Come on. Sweet little fellow. We talked about the funeral and what his, his great-grandfather meant to him. One day, you and I are going to be at a service like that, not in attendance, but we're going to be in the coffin. You with me? That day's coming for us all. And it should, there's a weightiness to that kind of conversation. There's a weightiness to this message. There's a weightiness to the sermon that we're going to dig around in today because Jesus gives a promise, but it's also a reminder that there's a consequence if we don't accept the free gift that he gives. And the heaven that's to come has nothing to do with anything that we earn our way into in this life. That's all about grace. It's all about the vow that you make. You can't earn your way there. But bringing the heaven to earth is about the choices that you make. It's about the life that you live. Jesus is making one of his boldest claims in all the seven, that this man's last few moments on earth are paradise. Heaven now, heaven forever. We believe that when Jesus said to him today, he wasn't just talking about what was going to come after they died. We believe he was talking about this last day, these last few hours that he had with him on that Friday. It's striking, isn't it? Because when you and I think of the word paradise, we don't describe the scene of this man hanging on the cross, right? So when you saw that word this morning, we like a little participation here at City Life. When you see the word paradise or you hear the word paradise, what are some things that come to mind? Not, not the answers you, maybe you think you're supposed to give in church, right? But just the reactionary things. When you hear the word paradise, what pops into your mind? What, 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 what do you see, David? Beaches, come on, yes, in a very tropical place, indeed. Yep, an oasis somewhere that's refreshing and calming and peaceful. Somebody else, when you hear the word paradise, what do you think? Shopping mall. Somebody last night at the Newport News campus said, Target by myself without my kids. We were like, yeah, paradise. April. You touring Italy. Nice. Come on, somebody else, when you hear the word paradise, what do you think of? What's a picture that comes to mind? Yes. A musician, a, gu a guitar store he went to in Nashville. It was, it was paradise for you, indeed. Come on, a couple more. Paradise. Sunny, bright, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's not the cross. You with me? Jesus says to this man today, You'll be with me in paradise. I love that he's this, this phrase that's given to him wasn't given in some idyllic setting. It wasn't given in the midst of some oasis in Jerusalem. It, it wasn't as though Jesus made this, this miraculous feast, this spread of calorie-free food, right? That Somebody said that one last night, a calorie-free buffet, that would be paradise for them. That, that it wasn't that setting where Jesus says to him today, you'll be with me in paradise. It was in a setting where they were dying. It was in a setting where this man was experiencing, this revolutionary, the most severe kind of pain that he had ever experienced in his entire life. That's what the cross was. It was designed by the Romans to kill you in such a way that it would be the most painful death that you could ever imagine. And it's in this situation, it's in this setting that Jesus has the audacity to say to him and to say to us, you're going to experience paradise 
before you die. There's a heaven now, and there's a heaven forever. And we're going to look at what this man experienced, what his last few hours looked like, because Jesus has an idea of what paradise is, and oftentimes it's a little bit different than what we see in our humanity. So in Luke 23, 39 to 41, we're not going to go there because we just read it, but this talks about how there were two revolutionaries that were crucified, two thieves that were crucified with Christ on the cross, and one of them was scoffing at him, according to Luke, and the other one was defending him. The other one was saying, hey, no, this isn't right. This is an innocent man. He recognizes Jesus for who he is. But then when we turn to Matthew, if you've got your Bible, you can turn there, you find something interesting. You find that Matthew has a little bit different of a story for what happens on this day. Let's start reading in verse 38. It says, two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And we know now he was talking about his body. Well, then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. And the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and the elders, they also mocked Jesus. He saved others. They scoffed. But he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Here it comes, verse 44. This is what Matthew says. Even the revolutionaries. He doesn't say the revolutionary singular. He says the revolutionaries. So Matthew is telling us that both criminals, both thieves, are on the cross with him, mocking him ridiculed him, it says, in the same way. Now, I don't think here that Matthew and Luke forgot to go to the editing meeting before the Bible was written to get their stories together, right? It wasn't as though that they were supposed to coordinate their stories and somehow something got mixed up or the, the, the Holy Spirit and, and bringing divine revelation to Luke, that he got a little bit confused when he was bringing divine revelation to Matthew. And we also believe as a church that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. If we ever find ourselves in a place where it looks as though the Bible's contradicting itself, that we've got to keep digging for more meaning because we know that's not possible. And I believe here we find the first picture of paradise. I believe here this is the first thing that we see where Jesus says to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He's speaking to something of life that he's experiencing that transcends even the most desperate of circumstances. He's speaking of transformation. This man came to the cross and began his day as a revolutionary. He finished his day as a devoted follower of Christ. He began his hours mocking Christ. He finished his hours on the cross worshiping him. He began his time scoffing at Jesus, but after spending time with him, something changed in his heart, and it transformed who he was. In 2009, I went on a mission trip to Niger, Africa, and there's a state church there that people go to, but it's more just of a tradition and a practice. It's not life-defining. It's not moment-by-moment governing, which is what your vow of devotion to Christ should be. But there are other churches, like the ones that we were working with, who the people that go there, they experience something like this revolutionary on the cross. They make a vow of devotion to Christ and something transforms and they, they become a different person. And the Christians there in Niger, Africa who go to those churches, they don't call them Christians, they call them hallelujahs. 
That's the name for the Christians. It's a great name, isn't it? To be known. And the reason why they're called that is because how they're observed and what they do in their worship, their, their excitement and their passion and their singing and then their coming together, that that doesn't get left behind on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. The people that they see them and observe them as in the service is who they find them to be throughout their week. But it wasn't always the case. They came as one and they left as someone else. And if you and I want to experience paradise in this life, if we want to experience this, this life where Jesus says it's heaven on earth, it means that we give ourselves to the transformative work that Christ wants to do in us. There is change that takes place in our life over time. There's change that we have to work out. There's change that's gradual. So for, for many of us, we're going to wake up tomorrow and look at ourselves today, and we're not going to seem very different. You with me? But there are other times in our lives where we should be waking up one day, and it's hard to recognize who the person was the day before. There's a kind of change that is dramatic sometimes in life. And for some of you, you, you might be in a place where you need to step into that kind of change. For some of you, you need to experience the power of Christ like Vanessa was praying in the wrap-up time today. We're calling it Jesus change. It's the change that, that even if you try harder, it's not going to come. It only comes when he touches your life. It's the kind of change maybe if you struggle in a place of despair, there's a, a supernatural hope that Christ can give to you that makes you different from one day to the next. It might be an addiction that you struggle with, and we want to stand with you and believe God. Come on. There's a supernatural transformation that can take place in your life where you wake up tomorrow and you're different from the person that you were yesterday. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's purity. I know when I made a vow of devotion to Christ in 1990, when I was 23 years old, the day that I woke up after I walked away from drunkenness, I walked away from drug abuse, I walked away from vulgarity, the way that I talked changed in a day from the power of Christ at work in my life. And, and, and we're, we as a church believe that if you're walking in a place where you need transformation, some of it takes, it's out of discipleship. Some of it takes place over time. But there is another kind of encounter that we want you to have a vision for, have an expectation for, have a prayer for. Some of the change that you need to happen in your life needs to happen by the power of Christ in an instant because he touches you and changes you in a moment. Jesus is telling us that today paradise that transcends even the most desperate of circumstances is when we abandon ourselves to Jesus' change. We want you to get this picture this morning that it wasn't as though he brought the thief down off the cross. He didn't rescue him out of his, his desperate circumstances. It wasn't as though that Jesus made his world all better before he made a pronouncement of paradise. This idea of a transcendent experience, this is important for us to grasp because for some of you, your circumstances are difficult. For some of you, we're going to wrap up the service by telling a little story of someone who shared about Friday Night Life this past Friday night, a gentleman by the name of Alan and part of his journey and part of his story. This idea of experiencing paradise doesn't necessarily mean that the difficulty of your day, your, your circumstances that are oftentimes dictated to you by other people, he doesn't always change those, but there can still be a paradise that you have on the inside. This criminal still suffered. This criminal, criminal still felt pain. He still died on that day. But I'm telling you, he died with a smile because he experienced paradise for the very first time in his life because he experienced the transformation that only Christ can give. 
All right, Luke 23, 40 to 41. Luke 23, 40 to 41. Again, we're not going to read that again because we already looked into that. But this focuses in on some of the words that this man spoke. It focuses in on the, the, the conversation that this thief steps into with the other thief, the other revolutionary that was on the cross. And so let me just read you a couple of thoughts here about this gentleman. So we like using the word revolutionary because if we just think of him as a thief, we think of him as someone who just stole something, but his crime would have been more severe than that given his mode of punishment. Since giving his, his, his method of execution, we know he was more than a thief. In addition, Matthew called him a revolutionary. He was most likely an insurrectionist with all probability being that Barabbas was supposed to be the third man to die with him that day. This man's thievery was likely activity in support of an organized rebellion against Roman rule. And his plea to his friend would not have been the first time he recruited. Imagine him recruiting others to his cause in his fight against Rome. And now here he is not realizing that God has been preparing him his entire life to be a great evangelist in his final hours. You can imagine this conversation that he's having with this friend on the cross. Come join us, brother, and let us die for the greatest of kingdoms. It's interesting, even the choices we make in our rebellion to God are not outside of providence. Even the, when we're running from God as fast as we can and as far as we can, and we think the choices and the decisions that we're making are just for ourselves, even then God is at work in us, leading us in those moments to prepare us for a future that we don't even have a vision for yet. I believe that this man and all of his choices and all of his, 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 his uh, riotous living and all of this, this, this path that he chose that was destructive and violent, that even then God was at work in his life making him ready to become a recruiter of others in his final day. Even then in his moments in the choices that he was making, God was preparing him to fulfill a destiny. Even though his destiny only lasted for a few hours, when we think of our lives as being eternal, those few hours were the sweetest hours of his life. So when I was in college, I chose business economics to, to be my course of study because I wanted to make a lot of money because I wanted to fund a pleasure-seeking lifestyle. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. That was the choice. That, those are the choices that I were making. I, I viewed myself as trying to be as far away from God as possible, but even in rebellion, we cannot run providence. And so, so that set me in a, a career, onto a career path. And so when I, when I turned 23 and made a vow of devotion to Christ, I continued in that career path for about two years in corporate America. And then in 1999, Vanessa and I were married then, and we were sitting in, the, in, our, in a church service that, that we came from, Mechanicsville Christian Center, and they announced they were going to hire a pastor of business administration. They wanted to bring someone on their pastoral staff. The church had grown from about 500 to over 1,000 in just a couple of years. And they said, we need a pastor on staff that can, can sure up the infrastructure of our church. And Vanessa and I looked at each other. I said, I'm supposed to do that. That's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And she said, you know, so she looks at me like a wife. I know. We've just been waiting for you to figure it out, right? So, so Luke and Joan were at Friday Night Life. And Luke likes to say that the nudge of the Holy Spirit in his life after being married for 60 years feels a lot like the elbow of his wife. So if you've been married for an amount of time, you know the truth of that statement. And so I felt the nudge of Vanessa that day and the nudge of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it? Because all the choices that I was making when I was running as far from God as I could was preparing me for the moment of destiny that I was supposed to step into on that Sunday morning in 1999. In your life, it doesn't matter where you've been and what you've done. It's the Romans 8.28 promise over you. 
all things work to the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that verse doesn't just start the day you make a vow of devotion to Christ. That verse speaks over your past. It says that God can take who you used to be, even if you live the most riotous life that you could possibly live this side of eternity. God says, hey, I can take that. I can redeem it. I can use it. From the day that you're born, providence is at work. The the creator of the universe is at work in your life, making you ready for your tomorrows. And this revolutionary that hung on the cross was dying a penalty that he deserved, even in the midst of all these terrible things that he had been doing. God was preparing him for one of the greatest moments of his life, to be a recruiter for the greatest of kingdoms. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Romans 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect, which in his day, that's everybody. You were either a Jew, and if you weren't a Jew, everybody else was lumped into this one category. Say, all people are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Verse 15, and how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Come on, you've got beautiful feet in here today. You've got beautiful feet. Because God has made those feet to carry you to places to bring the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you go. If you're in the military and orders come down, we like to talk about this at City Life because probably about 25% of the church is active military. When those orders come down, it's not because some, some, some officer in some office is making a decision. It's because God is working through that decision to get you to the place that you need to go to be an impact on somebody's life in that city that you're traveling to. There's somebody there that you're supposed to reach. There's somebody there that you're supposed to be connected to. When you're making decisions about buying a house in the neighborhood that you're living in, it's not just about the real estate market. It's not all of these. Come on, you can't outrun providence. God is at work through every decision and every detail of your life to get your beautiful feet that carry the message of the gospel of Christ to a place, to people, and in relationships so that you can have the impact on their life that you're supposed to have. And your past, as ugly as it might be, does doesn't disqualify you for those moments of being talked to those people. God uses that to prepare you to relate to different people in different settings in ways that others might not. All of us have a call on our life to tell other people about Christ. And for some of them, they might be hearing about it for the very first time. And Jesus says to you, and he says to me, if you want to experience paradise in this life that transcends even the most desperate of circumstances, then walk in the transformation that I can do in you and be a person that echoes to the world my message. He's telling us that today paradise, come on, not that we have to wait to get to when we breathe our last, but today paradise that transcends even the most desperate of circumstances is when we echo Jesus to our world. 
We use that word echo because you can't convince someone about who Christ is. That's a spiritual work, right? Jesus said, no one can come to me unless he who sent me draws him. Jesus says that no one can call Jesus Lord but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, it's one man plants and other waters, but it's God who gives the increase. We're seed planters, come on, and are carrying the message of the gospel. It's not our job to convince their heart to take the step that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But we do have a responsibility to be the one that begins to enter into the conversation with them, especially when nobody else has. You and I have people that we're surrounded by every day that need to either be in this room or a room like this somewhere in Williamsburg. You and I are surrounded by people every day, and, and, and they're not experienced heaven now, and they don't have the hope of the heaven to come. And God looks at you, and he looks at me, and he says, come on, you're supposed to do something about that. All right, John 19, 25. This is number three. We're going to do four of them together this morning. John 19, 25. I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to read a few thoughts about this text. This one here in the Gospel of John gives us a, a, a description of some of the people that are in attendance that day at Jesus' crucifixion. So we start, there's a single mom that's there, and that's Jesus' mother. We also find that there is a sister there, Salome, James and John's mother. There's a prostitute delivered from demons, Mary Magdalene. So we have someone that's kind of a social outcast for their day. We have a woman whose husband didn't come, Mary, the wife of Cleopas. We have reluctant participants, right? Maybe some of you today, you're a reluctant participant. Someone made you come, but you didn't want to be here. Not that that's ever happened at the City Life Church, right? Come on. You have, relu- you have people that are there who didn't want to be there. Some of there because it was just their job. You have people that are curious. People that are coming because they've heard about this man, Jesus, and they want to see what's going to happen. You have the detractors, people who came just to scoff. You have a 47-word sermon. You have an altar call where a revolutionary and a Roman soldier gives their heart to Christ, and you have the presence of a living God. doesn't sound too different from what church services are like today, 2,000 years later, does it? We, we look at this scene, we look at this scene, and we think of it as an execution, but I don't think Jesus views it as an execution. I think Jesus views it as one of the very first church services in the history of the world. I think he views it as a moment where people were gathered together at his feet. The presence of God was there. People's lives were being changed. Ministry was being done. Commands were being given, like we talked about last week about John and Mary and this newfound relationship that they were going to have as being a part of a spiritual family. You find church taking place here even in the most desperate of circumstances. In Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, Oh, I like this story. Beginning in verse 17, it says, One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. And it seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. And some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. And they tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some more tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, Who does he think that he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew that they were think, what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to stand up and walk? 
And so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, he picked up his mat, he went home praising God, and everyone was gripped with wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. You know, when I read stories like this, you know, one of the things I like to think about, I like to think about the people who weren't there that day. I like to think about the people who had someone come along and said, hey, Jesus is in town. He's going to be teaching. Let's go in here. And somebody says, you know, I don't really feel like going today. You know, I I just, I'm too busy. I got got stuff to do. Can, Can you imagine after this meeting was over and all the people are coming home and, and the people are saying, hey, how was it today? Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened, right? And they're telling stories. And what do you think the feeling was in the hearts of some of those people that didn't go? They're thinking, oh, why did I stay at home? Why didn't I go? And that's the circumstance for many of us in our lives. There's something waiting for us that Jesus calls paradise when we gather together at his feet. There's something that we experience that Jesus calls paradise when we step into a place of community with each other. And I I believe, I believe with all of my heart that, that we don't have to necessarily see, although we believe God for it, even though we pray for it at times, we, we don't have to see a paralyzed person get off, off of a mat to stand in a place of awe and wonder at the goodness of God. We can stand in awe at the goodness of God when we begin to hear the stories of the people around us, but we're not going to hear the stories of people around us if we never step into a place of being around them. Think about Friday Night Life that we do, which we call as kind of our members class that we do throughout the year. And uh, we, we, we open that class, we open it with prayer, but then we take the next 45 minutes or so and everybody that's there tells a little bit about their journey. So Friday night, just upstairs, we had about 18 or so people and we go around the room and, 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 the, and the question, it's a new question that we're using, we're gonna start using is pick a God moment. Pick a moment in your life where you experience God in a dramatic way tell that story. Just just tell that moment. Tell that story to us. In person after person after person after. And if you were there, and some of you were in the room with us, that, that we stood in awe and wonder in being in that room together, hearing those stories. Luke was sharing about he and Joan about how they, uh, they, they didn't make a vow of devotion to Christ until they were 55, and their son led them to Christ. Come on, isn't that powerful? So at 65, 10 years, 65, they packed their bags and went to China to be missionaries for two years teaching language. You ready, you ready for that at 65? Right. We're thinking about dialing it down when we get to 65, and they were, they're just getting warmed up. They're just, he told the story about baptizing a man in China. It's an underground church in a bathtub behind a locked door, right? And one of the things that they weren't supposed to do was supposed to baptize anybody. And Luke says, oh, I'm going to baptize somebody while I'm here, right? He was experiencing paradise in this life. Somebody didn't get healed, although we would get excited about that. But if we only focus on the healing of the physical body, we, we, we miss some of the greatest miracles of our lives, the healing that takes place on the inside. I, I moved away from that meeting on Friday night, standing in awe and wonder just from the, from the diversity in that room. We had a, 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 a young lady, she's in the Navy, Stephanie in the, in, in the Navy, in her 20s, right? And then we have Luke and Joan that are approaching 80, 60 years of marriage. 
So many different ethnicities, so many different walks of life. And, and uh, uh, Vicki and Andy, who are traveling today, were there. They usually sit right here, if you know Vicki and Andy. He talked about that when they were in Europe, and they were really active in ministry, even though they were in there because the military sent them. But they understood this idea of providence, that it wasn't the military that was sending them. Come on, it was God that was sending them to those places. And they said he loved, he loved to get in church services that were, were, were over there where lots of people in the military because it was such a diverse group. And he said it moved his heart every time he saw it because he realized he was getting a glimpse of what heaven was going to be like. I'm telling you, if you want to experience paradise in this life that transcends even the most desperate of circumstances, it's saying, Jesus, I don't want to stay who I am. Change me. I want to wake up tomorrow different than I am today. And let my feet be feet that carry me to people who don't know about Christ, and I can be a part of their journey. I can be a part of their story. And it's stepping into this place where we say, I'm not going to let anything keep me away from the community that I'm, not, I'm supposed to be a part of, even if it means digging a hole in a roof and climbing down, right? We're all waiting for the day where somebody from the laundromat can't figure out how to get in, right? And so they just come in right through there. We would stand in on one. We know when somebody, we joke that somebody's using the really big spin cycle on the commercial size machine because that chandelier right there shakes. And so we joke around that every time somebody goes to that particular machine on Sunday morning, they go, I just feel such a peace and I'm not sure why, right? There's just something coming up through the floor that's capturing their life. There's a community that people are desperate to find. There is a relationship with Christ that people are dying to have. And the question is, how much effort are you and I willing to go to to see that happen? How hard are you willing to work? We want to be a church that challenges you to break your sweat a little bit in your Christian faith. We want to be a church that says, it's, it's going to be hard for me to not be there. It's going to be the exception for me not to come. Not because we're trying to build a number on a piece of paper or account, because we know that when you come, you experience something that Jesus said, even to a man who was about to die, you're going to have paradise today because of what you're going to find here together with us. Today, paradise that transcends even the most desperate of circumstances is when we gather together with others at the feet of Jesus that we call church. We say it here all the time, and we're going to always say it. Even if this isn't the church that you feel that God's calling you to, share that with us. We'll give you a list of churches in the city that we think are great churches that you should check out. It's not about whether or not you come here. It's about that you're going somewhere. Don't live your life as a spiritual orphan. It's part of the paradise that he wants you to have. All right, one more. You ready for one more? It's our last one. Luke 23, 42. Luke 23, 42. Let's read this one. It says, then he says, Jesus. Now, this is the New Living Translation, but some other translations render it a little bit different. So I'm going to insert a word here in some of you, your Bible, your translation that you might have, might have this word. Then he said, Jesus, and then it inserts the word. Most manuscripts say the word Lord. Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, that's an important word. I think that word belongs there because I think that's where this man is saying, I came to the cross knowing your name, but now it's personal for me. I came to the cross knowing a little bit about who you are, but now you mean something to me. 
You can read somebody's name off of a name tag, but then there's a relational word that slips in there, right? So like my kids, they might, I didn't get mine today. I'm setting a poor example, right? My kids might see Pastor Fred written on my name tag, but I'm just not Fred to them. I'm father. Does that make sense? So you've got somebody sitting next to you. There's a name on there, but it's husband, it's wife. There's another word that you'll use to help define the relationship that you have with them. This man came to the cross. He probably knew Jesus, but he didn't have the word Lord in his life, in his relationship with Christ. It gets personal now. He's now using a word that says, I belong to you. He's now using a word that says, you're the master over me. Now, it's hard for us to connect to that, right, in our American culture because because in, in the freedom that we have, we celebrate. We, we, we get that, and we don't want to change that. We believe in those freedoms. But sometimes it's hard for us to grasp the ancient culture of Jesus' day. This idea of people having masters were, was a very real reality, that people actually belonged to someone else. And Jesus uses this practice, which is not good politically, but it's very good spiritually, right? He redeems this practice in the world to help describe what our relationship with him is supposed to be like. And so when we get into the New Testament, we look into these four books, Romans written by Paul, James by James, Peter by Peter, and then we've got Jude, right? And so the first verse of each of these books in the Bible, they introduce their name and then they say a servant of Christ. They use this word servant. In the Greek, that's the word doulos. And that word is connected to this idea of a Lord. There's a Lord who's the master. There's the person who's in authority and the people that they're in authority over are their servants. Now we use the word servant all the time, right? In our everyday life. We think of it, we serve one another at church and, and, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? This is not talking about just doing something for someone. It's the stepping into a relationship where you abandon all of your freedoms to this person's authority. It's stepping into a relationship where you say to that one, you have the final say in my life and that's what Jesus asks of us. And in the New Testament, when you find this word servant begin to fly around a little bit, it's because these people came out of a Jewish culture and they understood this idea of what it meant to be a servant to someone for life. Come on, we're getting into deep waters here at the City Life Church in this series. Exodus 21. Listen to this. This is part of the Mosaic Law. These are the regulations that you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years, set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons and daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year. That seems unfair, but we got to remember that God's in the business of writing a prophetic story that's supposed to teach us something about a spiritual relationship. Listen to what he says. But the slave may declare, I love my master and my wife and my children, and I don't want to go free. And if he does this, his master must present him before God, and then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl, A-W-L, which is a large squared metal object. And after that, the slave will serve his master for life. Now, they didn't do this in this part of your ear, right? I've never had my ears pierced or any tattoos like that because I'm a sissy and all the pain and stuff. That, right, that makes me a little nervous, right? But if you've had your ear pierced, you know it probably stings a little bit, right? But this part of your ear, this is a whole different world up here, right? 
Anybody have, ever had this part of your ear? Some, right? This part of your ear, you feel this. This part of your ear, there's a, there's a pain. That, and, and they didn't use this little tiny thing, right? It's this huge metal spike that, they, that creates this massive hole in your ear. And this right here, if you don't write, you got to keep that thing in there so your, your, your stutter, whatever, so it won't, because so, it'll, it'll close over time. This right here, it's not going to close. It takes a part of the body that's very public and visible and removes it forever. It's a reminder to this person and to everyone who sees this person they belong to someone. This person has a master. This person, not because their debt was so big, not because their penalty was so great, but because they made a choice on their own from a place of freedom to say, I want to belong to someone else for the rest of my life because of the love that I had for the master and my family that was there. It said something to the world around them. And this is the concept that the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begin to put in play. You and I, in this life, we stand in a place where we think that we're free because we get to do whatever we want. And what Jesus says to us is there's no greater bondage than living in that place. That in our freedom, he invites us into a decision where we say, Jesus, I know about you. I recognize your name, but I want you to be my Lord. Last week, we talked about what's the sign that hangs over your head, and today I would ask you, what's your ear look like? Because I've got a big old hole in mine because I want to belong to him for the rest of my life. Come on, I'd like the worship team to come back up. We've got one more for you here. Uh, let me read this statement. So Jesus is telling us that today paradise that transcends even the most desperate of circumstances is when we embrace the freedom that only comes through surrender. All right, this is my last verse I'm going to give you this morning. This is out of Psalm 40. Oh, I like this verse. I found this verse late in the week. I had a different clothes that I was working on, and, and late that afternoon I was studying something else for the rest of the series, and I, and I came across this text. I was like, oh, come on, this is great, because we were going to talk about this idea of, of, uh, of, your, of this piercing in your ear. And so here in Psalm 40, I'm going to start reading it. I'm going to read 6 through 8, and then I'm going to focus in on a certain part of this verse. It says, you take no delight in sacrifices or offerings now that you have made me listen. I'm going to come back to that. Now that you've made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. That's this idea that, that, that he's more concerned with your heart than your practice. It says, then I said, look, I have come. As is written about me in scriptures, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. So, so right up there in verse 6 where it says you've made me, made, made me listen, that's how the New Living Translation renders it. But there's some other translations in the Bible that get a little bit more specific. And in the Hebrew, it, means, it literally means you opened my ear. And it might be the Bible that you use has that phrase in there. You opened my ear. Now, does, does that mean that, that he opens the ear so that we can hear and understand spiritual? I think so. I think that's a, a fair rendering of that text. Jesus often used the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. I think part of that's what David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing here, that there's a spiritual ear that we have. But it's interesting that the Hebrew word that he picks here, to open your ear, it means to bore a hole. It means to dig something out. It's powerful, isn't it? This idea that David is saying, David is saying, 
When you allow the ear of your life to be laid up against the doorpost and you make a decision to step into lifelong servitude to Christ, there is a place of understanding that you begin to enter into with the things of the kingdom of God that you weren't able to understand before. That's why sometimes people, before they make a vow of devotion to Christ, they pick up this book and sometimes it's just, no matter how hard they try, they just can't figure it out. And no matter how much more time they might spend, they might not ever figure it out because it doesn't have anything to do with the understanding here it has everything to do with the condition of their heart here reflected by what their ear looks like there would you and I step into this place of saying Jesus I want to be your I want you to be my master I want to live for you forever he says there's a place that we can begin to enter into where there's an understanding that begins to come from this book there's a revelation that we begin to experience and David refers to it as you often find it written in scripture especially in the Old Testament that it's written on the table of our heart it begins to define who we are. It's not information, it's impartation that begins to transform the way that we live. Stand with me as we worship. Father, we thank you for the pronouncement of Jesus on the cross. We thank you that in these six hours that, 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 that he had, in these 47 words that, that, that he chose, that right here in the midst of them, he says to them and he says to us today, you can be with me in paradise. And Father, we want want to be a people. We want to be a church that believes that there's a paradise. There's an experience to life that we can have in the here and now. As desperate of our circumstances might be, it is as if we're walking in an oasis, even in the midst of crisis, because we're experiencing the transformation that you promised. We're experiencing the joy and the awe and the wonder of helping others come to the choice of lifelong servitude to the Savior of the world. Because we're drinking deep of community and because we live our lives with this realization that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to the greatest master that we could ever give our allegiance to. Father, we want our hearts to be such today. We want to be our hearts today that we recognize there is no greater privilege that we can ever have than to follow after you, Christ. We, we want today to be a day where there's a smile that comes across our face. As difficult as our journey might be in these moments, God, there's a smile that comes over us because we know that we belong to you. In Christ's name, let's worship together.